Hey, so the episode you're about to hear today was recorded about four weeks ago, but we are recording an episode set to come out in about five weeks. And because we're on mics, we thought we'd just record a little disclaimer, just to kind of acknowledge what happened on Saturday with the news of Chadwick Boseman's death. Obviously, as a podcast, Matt and I started recording together, recording about the Marvel movies. The first movie we covered that actually came out in cinemas was Black Panther. It's the only episode we've ever recorded twice between the two of us. And I just thought it was kind of important for us to acknowledge just a man... (laughs) who has very sadly been taken from us at such a young age. Just such a good fucking human being, like a bright, shining light in an industry of very shitty people. None of us personally know celebrities, but like every interview you see of this man, he was just so like full of life and just such a good, good, good person and like deeply believed in paying it forward. I have been meaning to watch The Five Bloods forever. Obviously, I still can, but, you know, just thinking about the roles that were still ahead of him, thinking about the incredible work he managed to do in a short space of time, some of it knowing, you know, that he likely didn't have long left. Being such a, like, beacon of light to the black community like that. Just a tragic, tragic loss. And I thought it best that we put this out here and don't just drop an episode where we're just ignoring what has happened and then whimsically talking about Grand Budapest Hotel for an hour and a half or whatever, but yeah. I mean, it, it's going to be tough for us to record now because spoilers for the podcast we're about to record on Creed. Um, yeah. While he is not in it, there are about four different levels in which he is involved in Creed. For There Will Be Movies, for Ben and Matt's Marvelous Journey, like, and, and that was another thing I said, that like, obviously Black Panther is his biggest role that like touched the most people, his most commercially successful thing. The indelible impact he's had on like the concept of superhero movies where so many young African-American and black people just getting to see themselves on the screen. But yeah, I, right. I, I, I don't want to reduce him to just a role that is like, you know, a Marvel character. Like this was also just a great fucking actor who I enjoyed in a lot of stuff. And I would have been excited to see where it played out from here and everything. But I'm sure I speak for Mike Thomas, for Jeronky Son, for everyone and the real world. Yeah, we are devastated by this news. Yeah, for for a community that's really had it tough this year, this is yeah. just another yeah. footnote in the list of shitty things that 2020 has brought. Fuck cancer, fuck 2020. Um, I'm just going to finish off with a quote from Spike Lee about why he cast Chadwick Boseman in Defy Bloods, uh, where he said, Here's the thing for me, this character is heroic, he's a superhero, who do we cast? We cast Jackie Robinson, James Brown, Thurgood Marshall, and we cast T'Challa. Welcome back to There Will Be Movies. This is a podcast looking at 25 of our favourite movies from a given decade. This is volume 2, so that means it's 2010 to 2019. Who are the we that is curating this list? Well, it's me, Matt Waters, and my co-host, who has been main host quite a lot so far, Ben Phillips. Ben, how is it to be back in the colour commentary talent role rather than the hosting role? I did have a brief panic attack whilst rewatching this movie going like, how on earth would I describe the plot of this movie? Well, we'll find out, won't we? <laughs> because this movie is Grand Budapest Hotel, it is episode 33. This was selected by me. I don't think that would have been a hard guess based on 
if you were paying attention in Volume 1, when we did Royal Tenenbaums, and I, I think I said Grand Budapest is my favourite Wes Anderson film, you said last week it's arguably the most Wes Anderson film. Um, it is certainly overflowing with Andersonisms. I think largely due to the size of the set, the hotel set that he so carefully is controlling. Because, I mean, Tenenbaums, you've got a lot of, like, apartments and stuff like this, and this is just this enormous decadent location for him to dress up in all of his favourite colours and styles, so... It is very, very, very Anderson-y. I think um, it's his its first wholly successful movie yeah, after Ten of Bounds as well. I, mean, I, I love Fantastic Mr. Fox, mm-hmm. and like I mean, I kind of put his animated work in a separate folder to the live-action stuff, but in terms of live-action, this is the one that feels the most complete. Like, yeah. Darjeeling Limited has its fans, as does Life Aquatic, but I feel like I people... think there's also been quite a push from Moonrise Kingdom as well. That was an, uh, yes, a, I mean, another Moon, one in this Moonrise, decade. Moonrise Kingdom is really lovely. And it is. I I do, yeah. I do really like it, and it probably is like after my top three of Ten and Bounds, Fantastic Mr. Fox, and and this, it probably would be like in that number four slot if we're excluding his Same. his ninth output. Same. I know Life Aquatic is in some ways like the signature, but like I've never like wholly loved it. Like I, I think it's very good, but it kind of isn't a complete film. It sort of loses itself in places, but I never want to say that opinion too loudly because I know people adore the aesthetic, which I do too. But this one, I'm pleasantly surprised, was kind of the big breakout hit because his stuff is, you know, adored in circles but not all that financially successful, whereas, you know, this is a $25 million budget because he continues to get a lot of these people on the cheap because they like working with him. Also, it'd be quite hard to justify some of their salaries given they're in it for, like, less than five minutes, most of them. But it made $173 million. So I believe that is still his most financially successful, unless Isle of Dogs made a shitload of money that I don't know about. Uh, I don't think Isle of Dogs made a shitload of money that you I, don't know about. <laughs> I didn't love that, personally. No, I, I, Isle of Dogs, <laughs> to me, it's just nowhere near as good as House Mr. Fox no. and like it, it, it's hard for me to be impressed by a Roald Dahl adaptation like Roald Dahl was a huge <laughs> part of my childhood yeah. and I read all those books they were like the first books I read cover to cover when I was like mm. four or five or whatever and to have a movie with so many American sensibilities kind of be the definitive telling of mm. this incredibly British story is kind of just really impressive that like <laughs> you, you can get away with it and, and do all these different things and yeah no I do love yeah. it I mean like we, we know idea what the French Dispatch could have done. Yeah, looking forward to it. <laughs> look at that. It's very interesting. It's supposedly going to be a series of like short stories. That would make on, sense. Yeah. yeah, obviously, like it was supposed to be out by now, I believe. Yeah, but it does feel like he's been on a vaguely upward trajectory. And Grand Budapest was this big explosion, mm-hmm. and French Dispatch was going to be his first live-action follow-up. Yeah, and don't know whether or not this trend would have continued, or if Grand Budapest is the outlier. I think he's from memory, not looking at the cast list. Right right now but it's like because this one is stuffed a party trick i'm not gonna do now was that i could recite everyone on the front cover of of this uh of this movie and like some of them it's like why are they on the cover they're in this for one minute but you know this is this is stuff full of stars as many of his things are but like i think french dispatch takes it to like a whole nother level where it's like almost everyone who's ever been in one of his movies plus a whole bunch of people he's never worked with yeah um, i think i think the funniest thing about french dispatch is the first poster came out and obviously beforehand people knew that Saoirse Ronan was in it the mm. first poster comes out and or the first trailer or whatever and she's not listed in the cast list she's instead in a smaller block of text off to the right hand side not among the people who are like <laughs> full on credited and it's like so you've just had an actress who's been nominated for best actress mm-hmm. at the Academy Awards and she's not even like in the, the first block of your <laughs> like credited cast members 
Three pronunciation lessons here from us on her name. Sersha, like the word inertia. It's actually not difficult. I have heard some wonderful butcherings of it, though. But yes, Sersha Ronan, if you've always wondered how that is said out loud. So written and directed by Wes Anderson, as generally all of his stuff is, although Owen Wilson was a heavy creative voice early and then sort of parts ways. But Hugo Guinness, who is a longtime collaborator, has a story credit because they tried to write this movie in, like, 2006 and then stalled and then Anderson at some point went sightseeing around Europe and read the works of Stefan Zweig and that like pushed it forward for him so it's like the original skeleton of the idea of the story is a co-write but the final product I think is almost entirely Anderson so it's sort of a like friend credit almost. Does Stefan Zweig have a movie that kind of can be transposed onto this or is it more just the general feel of his work that's influenced this? I think it's just a sort of general tone rather than a specific yeah, I work. Mean, speaking of that, I do quite enjoy... Obviously, for the last couple of movies, he's had kind of animation infused into parts of the movies. It's why he started getting into animation with Fantastic Mr. Fox. But I do like that this movie will take time out to cut away from a realistic set and do mm. a set piece which is almost wholly animated yeah. in some ways and i feel the bones of that are in life aquatic where like the tour of the ship uh, or the submarine that's all like a cardboard diorama type thing but this mm. does it like a lot and on a slightly larger scale it's so so charming it's like it's the kind of thing where like you could imagine someone less famous than him or, or like some unknown person doing something like this and people just be like uh-huh but like because he is who he is it's like it's so endlessly charming it's like oh look this is obviously fake but it's it's lovely when they're skiing and it's obviously just like a toy or something <laughs> and they're going comically fast anyway this was released in the us and the uk on march 7th of 2014 ben we are going to be in 2014 for quite some time and against all odds i think the best thing to talk about for wes anderson a wes anderson film would be what the highest grossing movies of 2014 were yeah so we're we're kind of now seeing the franchise as we've done in the last couple episodes so we've got a top 10 that consists of interstellar which we won't be talking about but a very late almost addition to the list yeah we were like mm, nolan should he probably be on this list but we got to a point where it's like that'd be the fifth 2014 movie that we'll be covering mm-hmm. because after after doing three episodes on one year each pretty much <laughs> but yeah so the rest of the top 10 consists of the amazing spider-man 2 which is a movie i still have not seen really <laughs> yep okay. dawn of the planet of the apes a movie which i have seen and do enjoy captain america winter soldier x-men days of future past hunger games mocking j part one because hollywood insists on splitting the fourth book in a series into who, two who started that is that harry potter it was Harry Potter. Hmm. Grumble, grumble. Uh, Maleficent, <laughs> Guns of the Galaxy, The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies, and Transformers, Age of Extinction. It's weird to think that two of that top five don't exist, really. <laughs> Who remembers Maleficent 1? They made a sequel that massively underperformed, and Hobbit Battle of the Five Armies is just not a thing. I remember I briefly tried to, I was like, yeah, I'll watch all the Hobbits, and I think I, I watched two of them. And then I was like, ah, maybe I, I, I won't watch The Hobbit. I have still only watched the first half of the first one before I fell asleep, so I didn't even <laughs> get up to the big golem scene. I think it's crazy that I think Lord of the Rings is more boring than The Hobbit. But anyway, before <laughs> I, I mean, get that crucified. Is, that is a category 
historically wrong opinion. It's so dull. I was talking to a friend, and she was saying that like the only movies that should be over 90 minutes are the extended versions of the Lord of the Rings movies. Nothing happens for one hour. <laughs> Sorry, look, we can't. We can't litigate Lord of the Rings right now. But this I think is... I think my favourite my favorite discussion of this is that the extended cuts are so long, and whoever wishing the monkey's paw to get those extended versions as good as they are, it just completely backfired, and we got a, a 120-page book or whatever it is extended out to a nine-hour fucking movie with The Hobbit. Yeah, so where is Grand Budapest in the in the total for the whole year? It's in the top 50. Wow. But 46, just ahead of Dumb and Dumber 2 and Into the Storm, <laughs> it is behind such hits of cinema that everyone definitely remembers as Dracula Untold, Need for Speed. <laughs> oh, yeah. Remember when they made the video yeah. adaptation Need for Speed with Aaron Paul? Yeah, not fast, not furious. You are seeing a lot of sequels, a lot of franchises stuff, but there are a lot of movies like Noah is number 23 at the box office this year. Wow. Oh, really? <laughs> Jeez. Unlucky everyone. I mean, Noah was made for a lot of money. I don't think it it, it like made its money back wholly, but it definitely made almost $360 million. Good lord. Uh, we get a movie whose sequel reminds me a lot of this movie with Paddington. I can see that. I mean, like, the entire Prison Break sequence is, like, point for point redone <laughs> in Paddington 2. Yes, which is why uh, Paddington then- 2 doesn't need to be on the list. Monster. Other movies that we like here, Edge of Tomorrow, Gone Girl, Lego Movie. When they're doing original properties, like I think this top list is actually pretty good. It's just when you're getting into like the sequel of a franchise that's been around for 20 years, you're like, oh my god, I don't need this. I'm still really mad at Fincher for directing Social Network, because I really wanted Gone Girl on the list. <laughs> like, I think that yeah. no repeat directors bothers me more than anything, and in Volume 1 I had three by the same person, so... Spread the love, Matt. I know, I know. But I just, I really like Gone Girl. Alright, so, this movie, as you said, somewhat difficult to talk about, even though he breaks it into these. So this bothers me. A lot of, of movies directors like to put things into acts or parts or, or whatever. I hate when they're so disproportionately linked. Like in Zero Dark Thirty they were doing it a bit where there were these title cards and some of them are like 10 minutes and then there's one that I think is about 40 minutes and I was like, has there been another title card that I've missed or are we still on that one? Or if they just dropped the concert? And yeah, like you have a very brief part one, a very, uh, I like decently linked part two an extremely long three a short four and an even shorter five i'm just weird in that way but as a woman reading the book grand budapest hotel by author and then it cuts back to 1985 where author is reading it and then it cuts back to 1968 when he stayed at the hotel to research the book and then back to 1932 where the events take place many levels of meta narrative going on here which aren't important not really no (laughs) (laughs) Which I think is what makes it so confusing is because one of the things I love about this movie is that a lot of Wes Anderson movies are kind of based around darkness within characters. Obviously, when we discuss Royal Tenenbaums, there's obviously just a deep depression that Mm. kind of like sits over the entirety of that movie. Uh, The suicide (laughs) scene is still like just incredibly haunting. Whereas this movie, I think, yes, there is a depression of the movie, but it's because of the context, because this movie takes place in 1930s Europe, particularly Eastern Europe, where Mm. just a lot of bad stuff was going. And whilst this is not a like for like onto anything in particular that was actually going on at the time, like it's not like this is pulling real life events and whatnot into it, but it's definitely taking the vibe of 1930s Europe and I think that's what makes it so successful. The darkness is kind of coming from these outside forces and you've got the build of the movie being so warm and so funny fighting back against it. I think it's that he's presenting a more palatable sadness. We all know what is being alluded to like because they're not Nazis, they're the 
the ZZ or whatever, and it, you know, it's no specific country, it's Zabrovka, but it's very clearly the, the World War Two is about to start, or, or the Nazis are about to start invading other countries. It's very clearly that, but like yeah. because that is a ingrained world event, it makes it somehow less sad. Like I don't know, it, just because it's this creeping thing that we know about, so therefore it feels safer somehow than yeah, and, uh, like a it, personal drama that is out of nowhere going to involve a suicide scene. Yeah, and and it, and even then, it still manages to make that final kind of twist the knife feels so much worse but i think what i like is that the two first nested stories mm. are a young girl visits the the, the kind of the shrine to the man named as author who wrote grand budapest hotel and you can read so much onto that is like why is she here what is it about this book that's kind of so inspired her to kind mm. of visit the, the grave of this author is it because she herself is an immigrant is it because mm. uh, there's a lot you can kind of pull from it and then you cut to the author who has, obviously he spends time away after he hears the story of the Grand Budapest Hotel before he starts writing it like he says he travels to South America and mm. and like he does whole other things and then decides to finally put pen to paper and publish this thing and like, yeah. what is it about the story that Zira Mustafa tells him that kind of inspires him and like neither of those two things are important but I think no. you add some like <laughs> nice context yeah. to both ends of the movie in terms of like this story that has been told for whatever it is is kind of universal and it touches people and the fact that the movie is kind of universal and touches people mm. kind of just elevates that all of that is true and it also he gets an excuse to be very Wes anderson right off the bat like that cemetery is like obviously he can't well maybe he can precisely place every individual tree and everything but it feels like a constructed set in that how everything is so visually interesting and then to cut to uh, you know the Tom Wilkinson scene with him you know he's talking directly into camera very intensely and then the child is fucking around he's like don't do it don't do it and like you know that little cut away and then telling him it's okay when he tries to apologize like that is very him like this sort of it's very posh and flowery and, and language and sophisticated and then there'll be just crude silly humor as well and that that's become his trademark is that mm. is that one too um and then you know getting jude law and it's like oh wow jude law's in this i do like him visiting the hotel like so far past its best telling the story of this just like really run down incredibly old looking hotel and then to see it in it in its full glory later but you know like you've got the lazy concierge and jason schwartzman and i like the touch that boy with apple is hanging behind the desk there and like you would have no idea what that would mean on a first viewing and it's on the back of the menus and all of that sort of stuff but yeah like all of that and then F. Murray Abraham taking him to dinner to start telling him the story and I think that that the scene with the the old baths like I would imagine like that's that seems like Wes Anderson like porn to be honest <laughs> like like the the visual structure of that and he, he puts them in all these unorthodox frames as well like they're very far away they're very not centered all of this sort of stuff it's he hits the ground running I would say like immediately yeah, it, it feels so much like him and obviously in the intervening 15 years since he does Royal Tenenbaums mm. he's kind of developed more and more into the diorama style like you can see it in places mm. in Royal Tenenbaums but this movie is so much 
everything is shot from almost a 2D plane and like things will approach or go further away from the camera or just they'll shoot everything from left to right and his entire thing is lots of static cameras and people move in relation to the camera there is very little the camera moving around and when it does happen it kind of feels very organic to what's going on like as you say during the scene where the little boy kind of like shoots the toy gun at Tom Wilkinson <laughs> the camera pans 90 degrees to the left yeah it's like it's breaking it almost you know like he he's known for this incredibly meticulous filmmaking where every set is so meticulously crafted and, and bespoke and, and you know all of the board games in the cupboard in Tenenbaums that kind of thing and then to have these elements of incredibly controlled chaos it's it's just a very nice little break from that every now and then that he will do. So part one is basically just who is Gustav and Ray Fiennes was quite frankly born to play this role. We've talked about it when we've covered him before that like my image of him is just this kind of gentler posher. It's this it's Paddington, it, it's his Alfred, and yet that is not actually his most recurring style of work because his most famous roles are these villains, but just he's just so perfectly, painfully posh, but also a bit vulgar with a with a temper. It's so perfect, this casting, and Anderson had wanted to work with him for a long time, and, and he really got him at the right time with the right role because, yeah, I just, I just love this, how incredibly precise he is with all of his instructions and just so in control of the whole hotel, walking around it, um, and just constantly telling the staff to do something differently. And, you know, in a sort of gentle, silly, parody, pastiche type thing, we can have a good laugh at the, like, unreasonable conditions all of these staff work in. Like, when Zero is, like, working six days a week and a half-day Sunday, which is 5am until midnight or whatever, it's like, ah ha ha ha. But, you know, real life, horrifying. But, yeah, I adore this. I think my favourite stretch of the movie is actually just the first third, where it's just building this little world, building the hotel, showing you around it, all the colours, like the bright red of, of the the elevator and the, the pinks everywhere, his purple uniform. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I just love it. Yeah, this is probably one of the best performances we're going to cover in the entire series. I think it's kind of a travesty he didn't get nominated for Best Actor. I do is, too, yeah. It's probably the best comedic performance in any Oscar-nominated film from this decade, I think. I can't think of a better comedic lead performance in any movie that's nominated for an Oscar. And obviously, yeah. he has had Oscar nominations. He's nominated for Schindler's List. He's nominated for The English Patient. But Ray Fiennes doesn't operate in a like a traditional leading man capacity. And no. when we discussed him in Hurt Locker, it was very much this kind of, like, he comes in and does this great comedic performance almost in this very dramatic moment of the movie and that's what he's kind of very well deployed as is a kind of character actor who's deployed into your movie for a fun moment or even him playing Voldemort for god knows how long where he just gets to do this menace but he's not being traditionally handsome leading man yeah. and then in this he is just hysterically funny every single line delivery from him so firmly fits and yeah. you look at the best actors like this year and it's Eddie Redmayne who wins Steve Carell for Foxcatcher Bradley Cooper from American Sniper Cumberbatch for Imitation Game and Keaton for Birdman and I could replace... we, can't, we can't get Cooper off there come on <laughs> I, that's the thing is like, I mean I think Cooper is very good in American Sniper but I would prefer to have yeah. this performance over Corel, Cooper, Cumberbatch and Redmayne at the very least <laughs> yeah. like not even saying which one I'd cut just like yeah, this yeah. should have been one of the five yeah easily like, such a motor mouth 
I, d- I don't have a copy of the script to analyse, but, like, he must speak over half of the dialogue in the whole movie. And he talked about how Anderson doesn't really allow improv um, and everything has to be incredibly precise to work with his aesthetic and his, his vision and everything and how that made him a bit nervous. But it's so, like, perfectly, like, on the head and, like, just how much dialogue he is constantly delivering at this breakneck pace and how it is constantly floating between, as I said, like, so incredibly upper crust and then he'll just, like, just start swearing or shouting and it's, yeah, he's all over the place. Yeah, and... it's just such a meticulously crafted character and they never once lose sight of like who he is because obviously you get the kind of questioning questionable sexuality of this person where you get the frequent lines where it's like you're never quite sure what his sexuality is other than he likes to sleep with the old lady yes he bangs Um, all the old rich ladies and again like that thing of like anderson is so whimsical and and i don't want to call him sophisticated but you know like it's all very wordy and floaty and flowery and then they'll just be like and here's a boob and here's a blowjob shot and stuff like that and it's like oh okay it's quite funny like the first woman who he's shown to have a relationship with is Tilda Swinton who's only two years older than Ray Fiennes mm. but obviously she's done up in so much makeup that yeah. she looks yeah, several it, decades older in this movie for what a minute <laughs> I don't know something like that 90 seconds she, arguably she might be appear more on screen as a corpse than well yeah, yeah. <laughs> but just so memorable like I mean obviously she's known for these like ridiculous heavily makeup heavily prosthetic heavily costumed like characters and and this is certainly one of them. And I love that, like, he is so doting on them. And then the exact second they're gone, it's just sort of like, right, forget that then. Um, <laughs> because they'll just sort of say, yeah, it's quite a thing to win the favour of a woman like that for 19 years in a row. It's like, right, anyway, who the fuck are you? I've never seen you before. <laughs> I've never seen you before. You go go do a task for me, but then don't do the task. I'm going to interview you immediately. Yeah. And, and that's how we meet. I mean, like, this is Tony Revolori's first film performance? Because I know he's got the introducing credit. He does, yes. And he will go on to be Flash Thompson, which is just wild to me. He is a return- he's returning for French Dispatch, though, so I'm very excited to see him working with Anderson again. Yeah, yeah, now he's sort of, like, you know, earned his chops or whatever. Yeah, like, interviewing... And I, I like that he is actually there, and he's one of the people that Gustav gives an instruction to in the room. But then he's like, I've never seen you, I've never laid eyes on you before. It's like, you, you definitely have. <laughs> Interviewing him and everything. And I like his little drawn on pencil mustache and everything like that. And like, he's completely unimpressed with him. And he's just like, experience zero families. Well, the family one is, is from him. And it's just so, sort of, that's where it gets a bit sad. Where he's like, he's dismissing everything he's saying. And he's saying zero. And he goes, family. And he just sort of is quiet. And he goes, zero. And it's just like, oh. This sort of unspoken story going on here that they're not drawing any focus to really except for a couple of moments it's quite yeah. sad but then and then you get the question of like why do you want to work as a as a lobby boy and he yeah. does like the perfect answer that completely convinces yeah. Gustav to like hire him yeah very good and then yeah briefly meeting Saoirse Ronan working at Mendel's with the beautifully ornate little cakes but the plot actually kicks in uh, in part two where Madame V like it's such a long name something something Von Taxis anyway Tilda Swinton's character she dies and he rushes to the wake for the will do reading to, do they have to go into a different country to go to I think the that's wake? the implication because yeah when they're on the train they get papers pleased by the not quite Nazis Ed Norton saves it from getting worse but there is a lot of questioning of Zero's 
immigration papers and working visa and all of this and both their noses get broken or, or bloodied by being slammed against the side but you know this scene will repeat later but but they're, they're rushing to this wake and he gets left this incredibly valuable painting in it the bitter son once who has been left like almost everything else will not accept it and like because well, everyone, everyone realizes that boy with apple is the the most valuable thing in the entire house obviously there's the estate and everything like that but boy with apple as they say is is priceless that's why people care about it i do enjoy that we get leia sado in our second movie <laughs> as like functionally a silent cameo in i the know background. i know if not for the fact that there are so many people in this movie who barely have anything to do i would complain about it but yeah her just speaking a bit of french and wrapping a painting essentially <laughs> it's just like okay bye leia i feel like leia Sado is not a face in the west at this point like she's no. done the warmest color and she's been in in ghost protocol but even then she's like doesn't she, say much in that movie should have been the villain man should have been the main villain <laughs> she is going to be in french dispatch okay that makes sense but it is, she is we are a few years away from her doing spectre and whatnot so yeah but speaking of spectre you have the greatest bond villain of them all, Matthew Almerich as Serge X as another sort of so much better deployed in this movie. Oh yeah, getting to do a vaguely comedic, vaguely panicked performance is yeah. such a better use of his skills his... than when we discussed him in Quantum of Solace. His big like, wide eyes doesn't... are funnier than they are menacing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He doesn't have the menace to portray a Bond villain, but he does have the ability to play the kind of slightly put upon butler, uh, the rich dowager. This stretch of the movie is quite funny because I like that everyone in her employee is very surprised when it, like he kisses her on the mouth and, like when he kisses her on the mouth they're all a bit like what is going on here what exactly is this relationship they obviously understand that they have a bond I... but they're all a bit like don't understand this yeah. and his flippancy towards it following instructions where they put him in the little room in the in the kitchens mm. and then immediately he's just like come on let's go to the <laughs> he you know, chucks or... the drink in the in the cactus or whatever. <laughs> I fucking adore when he's like talking to the corpse and he's like I don't know what kind of cream they're putting on you down at the morgue but i want some and then and just dropping her hand the exact second he's done with it and everything and the fact that like he complains about her nails before she leaves and she's obviously fixed them on his recommendation as she's got home yeah so he's like admiring her hand and then the second he's finished with her he just drops that hand he almost like shoves it down or whatever yeah and we get like all the doors opening like by themselves there's a lot of tiny windows and framing and all the good stuff that the film students love but yeah at, at this will reading we have jeff Goldblum, who is, he represents the mysterious owner, who obviously is Madame, <laughs> is, is Madame D. It's so obvious from when they put that line in, when they're like, oh, we were surprised to see Kovacs <laughs> appear, and then you're like, I represent both Madame D and Grand Budapest Hotel, it's like, well, yeah. okay, it's yes. pretty obvious where this is going. And he gets to deliver this, like, phenomenally, again, like, this overly precise unnecessarily complex legal jargon monologue and he's like pyramiding his hands and everything like it, it's just great i would imagine that was a lot of fun for him this is also where the movie kind of becomes a little bit nonsense where so much <laughs> of it is again about like who has control over the will what exactly all these bits of paper mean and whilst you can boil it down to the idea that adrian brody wants the boy with apple and wants control of his mother's estate there's so much like weird complicating matters that get thrown at you and you're like oh my god am i supposed to be paying attention to this 
this? No, or? not at all. <laughs> I think weaponizing Adrian Brody's fundamental lack of likability and making him just a full-on villain was a great move. He does drop F-bombs, but he's the villain. Is it only, is it only I guess him he's... and Ray Fiennes who get to drop F-bombs? Yeah, and I guess Ray Fiennes is saying it back at him in protest or whatever, but the very homophobic treatment towards him, I guess it is what it is. It's it's Europe. It's like almost a hundred years ago, I mean, and yeah, he's it's, a villain. And... It's obviously very well deployed, and you get you do get the very amusing. How can I be a faggot if I <laughs> if I'm also sleeping with your mother? And he's like, oh, you're bisexual then. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's good stuff. And yeah, like all the punching. Willem Dafoe is here to just be a largely silent muscle character. The missing teeth and the giant elaborate leather duster and, and all of that. Like, yeah, it's, it's a great visual character for him. This is a great decade for Willem Dafoe. It really is. Willem Dafoe is my supporting actor in two years of this decade. And, and on top of the fact that he's got this, he's got John Wick in the same year as this movie. Yeah. I get increasingly happy when Willem Dafoe shows up in a movie, even yeah. if he's kind of playing off of Spider-Man energy a yeah. little bit in this. Well, I look forward to him playing the Joker opposite Patterson and then just turning Batman 2 into the lighthouse, you know? Like, <laughs> so Zero is like, just take the fucking painting. And I love they replace it with this, like, again, quite vulgar picture depicting two naked women touching each well, other. I just, I just enjoy that the, the subtext here is that like this is just a picture that Madame D just had lying around, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, and also I like him being like oh this painting is beautiful it's amazing it's perfect and then all the rest of this is shit um, and then yeah Almerick and Seydal like wrapping the painting up and Almerick slips in this this secret letter that we'll pay off later but getting out of there and like saying right yes I will never part with it for the rest of my days I'll die with it above my bed actually we should sell it and then just sort of <laughs> launching into their plan to get rid you know fence it on the black market go to the Riviera like hide out until the war blows over because this it's going to be a tricky war and it's going to be tough on the hotel trade <laughs> yeah all of that is again, good again it's it's the darkness is there but yeah. they're able to just kind of like brush it away where like we know the war that like even though it's 1932 and like whatever war this ends up being it's not going to be a one to one likeness for World War 2 but we know what kind of conflict they're talking about and uh-huh. again it just pervades the entire movie and it's just nice that we get to spend it with these two very mismatched friends mm. as they try and fence a painting for this yeah. brief stretch of the movie yes no 1.5% is correct and you will be my you're my sole heir you'll have everything and I love when he goes I'll draw it up immediately and then he just hands Zero a pen and paper and starts dictating <laughs> it's like what and as you said like they do this shot with because every now and then you do hear F. Mary Abraham's narration. And he's talking about Gustav as he's like staring up at camera, like lying awake, and then his eyes slowly close. And it does, every now and then, they like to remind you this isn't as whimsical and joyous as it seems. Like he is telling the story as a tragedy. Like he's obviously got a like, oh, I remember the, the lovely old days, but like every part of the story has like some pain in it for him. And like he won't talk about Agatha and, and stuff like that. And just every now and then they will they will hit you with something like this, and it's like it takes on a surprising amount of like poignance and everything. But and then they immediately go back to comedy because when Ed Norton and the Nazis show up at the hotel, he's like, "You think I did it?" And then he just sprints away and like, like keeping oh, the camera such a still. Great shot, <laughs> yeah. Such a great shot of him like running away from the camera. And again, like Ray Fiennes <laughs> is just a comic force in this yeah. movie because. 
not only is he having to do very precise dialogue, very precisely timed, mm-hmm. he's also getting to do an awful lot of physical comedy as well, just in like his body motions and stuff like that. Yeah, and it's kind like of he's a tall, skinny it... man, so like he looks fundamentally quite funny when he just suddenly runs away wearing this, like you know, the long top and tails as well of, of his of his outfit. I think that's what makes it so because Ray Fiennes is someone who has portrayed a traditional leading man in movies, mm. but he's also very much a character actor, and this movie is threading that needle of bringing those two sensibilities together whilst also having him deliver this like just masterful comic performance. But I can't imagine someone else playing this role. No. It almost feels like it's the kind of thing that Rowan Atkinson would have done kind of 20, 30 years beforehand. Yeah. If you've got like post Blackadder pre beam in that window there. Yeah. Possibly. No, yeah, it's definitely in his wheelhouse. But in terms of like this movie, like it's like if you hadn't got him, you probably shouldn't have made this movie. Or you yeah. should have dramatically changed it so Zero is the main character or something like that. I don't know. Maybe Bill Murray tries for it. I don't, I don't, I don't know. We will get his 30-second cameo soon. So part three is, as you said, basically the Paddington section. <laughs> because Serge is on the run. He's like a key witness. Something is amiss about all of the stuff with the will. There is a letter missing. Adrian Brody wants him to like wrap it up quickly. And yeah, Willem Dafoe basically just goes hunting for Serge. He kills Kovacs. He goes looking for Agatha. Like all of this stuff. I, I really like these shots that he's on the phone to Adrian Brody. And like you just see this top down shot of his desk. And there's like a different document or picture or something on the desk. And just like his perfectly placed like weapons. And it feels almost not real. But mm. I don't. I, they, they do this shot like three times and for some reason it just it just really sticks with me but yeah so Gustav's in prison he sends them a 47 stanza poem they have to read during dinner uh he we should start the soup because it's 47 stanzas (laughs) (laughs) and you have Harvey Keitel here and his boys planning an escape I love who's got the throat slitter to cut up a cake from Mendel's uh any mush gents it's particularly warm today all that sort of stuff and that they basically start smuggling in tools in these Mendel's cake boxes to tunnel out and i love you see them like hacking apart bread and cheese which are obviously bread and cheese and then you get these cakes that are in the exact perfect shape of little chisels and hammers and everything and they leave them be and just move them down the line because they're so gorgeous (laughs) yeah zero and agatha have gotten engaged i love will you marry me yes and then they start banging in a theater or whatever and and gustav is like flirting with her when he's like interviewing her on his behalf and all this and again like you know his sexuality is all over the place is this man gay is this man straight does this man like them old does this man like them young who is he i think he's uh, almost in some ways sapiosexual or pansexual like it doesn't really matter he's just yeah, yeah, yeah. someone who's just like incredibly flirtatious and yes. it's kind of a shame that like they didn't include some stuff of like maybe him flirting with with zero or anything like that it's mm. just i don't know like it, they definitely do kind of leave it ambiguous whilst also making him mostly straight which yeah, yeah, yeah. this section of the movie kind of adds in a sense of violence because obviously like it yeah. starts off with the <laughs> incredibly like out of left field moment of Joplin throwing Kovacs's cat out the window and <laughs> Jeff Goblin so plays violently. It. he plays it so wonderfully good. Did, that, did he just throw the cat out the window and there's this comic oh yeah yeah the sister's been like no no I don't think and then when you actually look out the window it's this very obvious like almost Play-Doh, like, splatted cat on the ground. <laughs> I'm guessing this didn't affect you as much as the multiple dog deaths in the leftovers. Well, no, because... <laughs> 
or no, because it's so silly. Right down to the fact that, like, when he leaves the building, <laughs> he checks out and they hand hands in his, like, coat check, whatever it is, and it says, cat corpse Persian. Contents <laughs> one deceased cat, or... <laughs> yeah. And then he gets a bloodied sack just handed to him. Yeah. Oh, God, so good. And then, yeah, Defoe, like, stalking him around the city, and, like, you first see him in the reflection of the window. When Kovacs lowers the blind, you see him on his bike, and then, yeah, just following him around, stalking him through the museum, he thinks he's gotten away, and then he slams the door and all of his fingers come off, and it's like, oh, Jesus. And we don't even see what he does to him, but then he, like, pockets the fingers, which is very perverse, but, yeah. Yeah, we find out he was shoved inside a sarcophagus. Of course, yes. The movie kind of takes this very violent turn right now, but it's all done in such a way that it feels whimsical in the ways that it's shot and whatnot. And it's this very, like, old-timey Hollywood you know, cat and mouse through a museum of, like, Egyptian artefact. You know, it, I don't know, it just feels very throwbacky in in its in its way, but then it takes this far more modern and and incredibly violent, abrupt ending when he slams that door on his face. Yeah, I, I do enjoy... I don't understand what they achieved for doing this. Like, because surely, kill, like, in a contested will reading, <laughs> killing, killing the lead attorney who is, like, going through it surely throws more, kind of, like, suspicion. Do we know at this point, or is it only later on when Dimitri comes into the hotel and he's wearing the, like, ZZ uniform that he is a member of this kind of political party? I mean, he certainly dresses very like them. In that he, but it um, isn't until later on when he shows up in the ZZ garb. You could probably have guessed, but I don't think they've explicitly told us at this point, no. So that's all going on, and yeah, you have this, like, Gustav reading into camera his letter, and he's got all the guards on one side, all the prisoners on the other, and, and you know, when he visit, when Zero visits him, and he's like, oh, I beat the living shit out of someone called Pinky, and oh, he's become a very dear friend, and all of this, and basically Paddington turning all of the, like, horribly violent criminals into his friends by just being nice. Yeah, not some mush. Just needs a bit of salt. Oh, I love him telling Harvey Keitel, like, who drew this? It's got a wonderful line. You have great artistic promise. <laughs> Not the thing we're talking about. But yes, they eventually do their elaborate escape. Uh, they have to step over so all of the guards. I, I know, they like go down and then around and then over, then out a window, then round the side, then back in. And <laughs> then they find five guards playing poker <laughs> in like the catacombs. One of them like brings out a knife, puts it in his teeth and then jumps down. And then we cut to him having killed four of them and then he's doing like the saving private ryan stab at the same time into <laughs> into the guy and then dies and again it's like this horrible violence but presented so whimsically and i do like when they escape and they start talking to zero and gustav kind of introduces everyone and then he just very nonchalantly throws out there oh and then one of us died in the catacombs <laughs> Like, why does Zero need to know that? Like, it doesn't. He probably doesn't know how many people are escaping. And I also love that, like, those two take so long talking to each other, and he's, like, asking about the disguises, and where's the odor panache, and, and this, that, and the other. Kaitel and his crew are very slowly escaping on this bus, and it's like, why don't you just go with them? They murder the driver of the bus, throw the driver of the bus in the back of the car, <laughs> then drive off very slowly, <laughs> and just the conversation, like, they, I think this is where Ray Fiennes is so good, because he starts getting, like, each successive thing makes him more and more stressed. Like, you don't have the disguises. Like, I know you don't think they look very good, but they do do a lot of work with the fake noses and the whiskers and whatnot. And like, oh, these are our outfits? God, this is terrible. At least tell me you've got the... Eau de panache, yes. And then he just starts going like, God, this is... He goes on this oddly racist, elitist rant that if not for the 
fact he apologizes less than a minute later, it's like, ooh. Where he's like, oh, this may be acceptable where everyone is collecting scarabs and living in tents and everything. It's like, oh god. Yeah. yeah. And then I love when Zero starts reciting a poem to goes, very good, but I am gonna have to stop you there because the alarm has sounded and they will just run off and burn. But this is also where we find out that Zero's an immigrant yeah. who's like lost all his family. Yeah. Fled like, from we, war. Like, we and... know he's an immigrant because of the way that he's being treated by the ZZ on the train and we know he's got no family, but this is where the two come together and mm. almost like obviously in 2014 this would have played, but it plays even more so nowadays where it's like, oh, so you're yeah. not an immigrant, you're a refugee then. Exactly, yeah. He is mortified that he treated him that way and everything, but we then go into the Society of the Crossed Keys. I think this is the draggy bit of the movie. Like, it's a 100 minute movie, it's breezy. You could potentially have trimmed a little bit of this because it just gets a little bit wishy-washy. I don't know. Like, I mean, we get, as I said, the obligatory cameo from Bill Murray. I love this thing of, like, all of the concierges of these, like, notable establishments where we can't quite place them in countries, but you can maybe take some guesses, but, like, they all keep handing over to their lobby boys and saying, take over. And it starts with something simple, like, conducting happy birthday, but then it's, like, firefighting and CPR and taste testing and stuff like that. I do um, like that it creates the idea that all the lobby boys are destined to one day become... The concierges. The yeah. concierge. <laughs> like, the lobby boy might seem like the most nothing position in the entire hotel but it becomes like the the integral like you will have to do anything that anyone wants you to do at any point in time and it does lead into the fact that Gustav kind of says at the end he says oh no I also was once a lobby boy and yes which he uh, asked him earlier on doesn't he I mean this is full of cameos obviously you get like Fisher Stevens and Bob Babylon <laughs> showing up at this moment and it's just kind of like little people in little moments Bill Murray obviously being the big one who yeah. gets to appear twice more in the movie and where did this shoot like how did you get Bill Murray in <laughs> into the car for when they like are sat on top of the haystack and then uh, the car shows up and Bill Murray's just in the car and gives him the load of panache and whatnot. I don't know, I kind of wish they either explored this more or I don't wish they dropped it, but you know, this like network of, of the of the notable establishments and how they can get you anything and it kind of is just deployed the once. We do see like she he gives Agatha the pendant that has the crossed keys on it and they're obviously all in attendance at the wedding at the end, but yeah, it's kind of a it's quite late to deploy this and then it to just go away again but you know it's all still fun and it, and that little scene I guess makes it all worth it but yeah it's just a very long winded way of getting us to a point where we find out where Serge X is because you can tell that the joke carries on to this you immediately go from one game of telephone to another game of telephone <laughs> with the, the, the priests in the convent where uh-huh. like get on, <laughs> get on this get on this elevator and then you'll have to change halfway through and then go back to this person every single successive person they ask is are you Monsieur Gustav from Grand Budapest Hotel. Yes, I am. Serge gets murdered. And I like that before this, like, we see Willem Dafoe go see his sister, and you don't see how that ends, but then you also know that he's looking for Agatha, and she's like, he's like potentially around, and she like pokes her head out the hatch or whatever. And then you hear this, them talking about how a local girl was beheaded. I don't know if I ever picked up on this before, but like when I was watching it this time, I was like, are you supposed to believe that he's killed Agatha off screen? And then it turns out it was Serge's sister. But I like, th- are you like for like the two seconds of yeah. the scene? are supposed to think he's killed Sergio yeah. Ronan off screen. Yeah, and I was like, oh no. It's a good thing that they reveal it so quickly, yeah, but I yeah. do think that it is very much, and I think a lot of this is kind of based on red herrings and stretching things out, and I do think it's part of the humour of this section of the movie. It's supposed to be like, yeah. keeping you guessing, you don't understand what's going on, very much in their yeah. frame of mind. Yeah, and we get this little alpine chase, and I, I like the shot of Willem Dafoe in the like the full religious outfit, but with his like, you know, Nazi boots underneath and everything, and he's like waving the, the 
thing. And I also like the like Addison does this a lot where it's not quite the Nazis, it's the ZZ, and it's like an, a nondescript but basically Christian monk sect. Like he kind of brushes through these fake countries and fake groups and everything, and like he never like very clearly attaches anything to anything. But they are like bombing it down the mountain, and it's all very cute and charming. And then he's got Gustav over the edge. And suddenly Zero, like, out of nowhere, shoves him to his death. He's like, holy shit, you've got him! Um, (laughs) Perfect. All this, like, sudden violence out of nowhere is great. R.I.P. Willem Dafoe and your charming little breast pocket toolkit. You know, like, he pops open this little flap and he's got, like, his gun in his elbow. Yeah. (laughs) A good use of Willem Dafoe's natural menacing nature. Yeah, he's just a very intense man, isn't he? I like that, actually, a lot of his roles, he's actually quite gentle and nice, but, like, you can never escape this image that he's a scary, pervert, violent man. Like. I think. I think. I just think Wes Anderson knows how to use Willem Dafoe, and yeah. I mean, again, a decade in which people are using Willem Dafoe very well. He's not doing award stuff really when he works with Wes Anderson, but I'm always happy when he shows up in a Wes Anderson movie. And yeah, like you know, to flip from a well-mannered, nice member of the crew in Life Aquatic to the horror movie monster guy in this, it's yeah, that's fun. And then we move into part five, the second copy of the Will. The second copy of the second will. Sorry, the second copy of the second will. I'm so sorry. Yes, the ZZ occupied the hotel uh, because you know, things are going south. Owen Wilson is the interim concierge. Like, But they I... don't set this up at all. Owen Wilson is just there. Yep, for, again, 45 seconds. Um, like, like, you do get the shot of Zero teaching him later. Uh, just, hey Owen Wilson, you're here. They want to sneak in and get that. Well, they they send Agatha in to acquire Boy with Apple from the safe because she can she can go in with with the Mendels and yeah. bribe her way through the building. Yes, but then because Adrian Brody rocks up, it's like oh, I guess we're gonna have to go in as well. And we have this little chase around the hotel. We have these long shots. We have this terrible shootout, which I love. People constantly <laughs> popping no out knows, of more doors. No one knows who anyone shooting out, but ostensibly they all must be on the same side. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're all meant to be Nazis, except for <laughs> Gustav. But they're all just shooting and no one's hitting anyone, and it's great. And then, you know, Agatha ends up dangling off the edge, and Zero runs to her, tries to barge down a door, but it opens in true slapstick fashion, and then he's hanging out the thing as well. They fall into the Mendel's thing and emerge from all the boxes in this gorgeous pink van full of pink boxes. It's crazy. This is, this is the shot that they use on, like, letterbox at the top of the screen. Oh, yeah. the shot of them looking at each other. They also get to see the second and will attach to the back of the painting that was put there by Sergex earlier on in the movie. Yeah. Her little point up and then the camera moving up is, is great as well. Again, like she talked about being a little bit nervous about because, you know, most of the cast here have worked with him before. They get the vibe or, you know, Ray Fiennes gets to do this towering performance that like the movie is built around. It's sort of a less conventional Anderson character in some ways, but all the, the bit players, they know what they're in for and she talked about how nervous she was to do it, but like Anderson like comfort and like that he was he's so sure of what he's doing is going to work that it like really put her at ease and yeah I, I kind of wish she had a bigger role and I hope she does in French Dispatch although that placement of her name is worrying but who knows she's obviously settled into her own group like I think that's the thing like spoilers Saoirse 
Ronan is going to come up again in this miniseries. Mm. Like this is <laughs> this is the first appearance of her on this list because she has after I, mean, I wouldn't say a disappointing time after Atonement. She just spends a lot of time trying to figure out what she wants to do, and she ends up doing stuff like the Lovely Bones and Hannah and the Host and just this kind of like trying to settle into what a younger female would kind of traditionally settle into, which is a lot of book adaptations or reunited with Joe Wright, who obviously cast her in Atonement all those years ago. And this feels like the start of her kind of starting to do more prestige things. Yeah. Obviously, it's not a big part, and I feel like she she's good in this, but she isn't the person people are talking about. It's just a very good, very charismatic supporting role, on top of all the other names that kind of come of it. And I think people wanted her for um, Scarlet Witch and Marvel around this time as well. And it was sort of a, like, oh, who's that again? And then, you know, you point to these smaller roles and stuff. But yeah, obviously it's all worked out for her. Like, you know, she got the lead in Lady Bird and, and stuff like that. But the movie just quite neatly wraps up in a lot of ways. Like, they get the, the second copy of the second will, and in the event of my murder, everything should go to Gustav. And he owns the hotel, Zero becomes the concierge instead, and... And, like, yeah, the story wraps up very nicely. Yeah, until except it doesn't. where it doesn't. Yeah, you know, like, he presides over the wedding, there's this very sad, just throwaway line about how Agatha, that, and that, Agatha that, and it is Zero's yeah. son, died of a now easily curable disease and it's just like oh okay just off screen she died okay and then yeah you get this like repeat of one of the early scenes where they're all traveling on the train together and they get boarded by the nazis again i like his his last funny line of oh you're the first of the death squads i've been introduced to or whatever but yeah like there's no ed norton to save him now he tears up that little permit that was written for him and he gets dragged away for defending zero and and he's later shot and it's it's all very sad and Earlier on, they were saved from this grim situation because little Albert stayed at the Grand Budapest and he did his concierge charm on Albert's mother and everything and like you know this the touch of class winning out and, and helping you know his philosophy of like people are rude because they think they won't get like what they want and you just have to be polite to everyone and, and being polite will always win out and then it doesn't that's the sort of the tragic thing and talking about how Jude Law asks F. Murray Abraham like you know is that where you keep this hotel because it's the last vestige of his world and he says how actually I think his world vanished before he ever got into it and you see this little montage of him as the owner and like you know becoming old blonde rich all of that there's the quote that he gives in the first one of the the moments where the zz gets on the train it's like you see there are still faint glimmers of civilization left in this barbaric slaughterhouse that was once known as humanity indeed that's what we provide in our own modest humble insignificant oh fuck it yeah exactly yeah <laughs> like it's like he's trying to be the last glimmer of, of humanity a, it, it was and... a better time everyone had manners and everyone was yeah like he is just so desperately trying to will that into continuing on but it just isn't to be it comes off not in a way of wistful nostalgia being the damaging thing that you see in the world nowadays where it's all very much like oh things were better back in the 1950s and you sit mm. there and go that's because you were five years old in the 1950s and didn't understand what was going on <laughs> and it, it was better for you specifically <laughs> yeah it's a kind of vaguely more positive nostalgia where it's like he's not trying to make the world back to how it was back then he's trying to instill values yeah. that made things better and you can see the positive outlook that he has where he does feel like he's making other people's lives better his charm is making these old women who 
have lost their kids. You see it with Madame D, where, like, she doesn't speak to her four children. Like, in her letter, she talks about how Gustave is the one person bringing her joy in the last years of her life, because presumably her kids have got money and gone off and just, I don't give a shit about my mother anymore. She can <laughs> holiday at this hotel for 19 years. It's that kind of nostalgia. Paying it forward kind of thing, and, like, you know, providing a kindness to people that need it, you know, that sort of stuff. And Because it kind of goes, like, sad, happy, sad, you know, Agatha dying, and then we move back to her being alive in a flashback and is it it's all black and white isn't it or do they move it to color it's all in black and white yeah okay i guess that's how you your visual identifier but yeah and then and then gustav is killed but a point here that we, we haven't really covered is that like zero is the mysterious is now the mysterious owner of the hotel and like he has continued to a few times a year take the smallest room in the hotel um, the, r- the room that we see him in like yes. where he was when he was a lobby or he hasn't even taken on gustav's room equally small yeah and actually, I was going to say, I like that shot as well, where, like, throughout, you see him so posh, so composed, he's giving his, like, big speech to the masses, and then when you see him alone in his room, he's just sort of a sad man in a tiny room, eating a bowl of mush, mush. I guess. <laughs> he kept it for Agatha because they were happy here, and he basically traded the fortune of everything else to maintain the hotel, which doesn't do very well. And, yeah, it kind of leaves it on this quite sad, poignant note, and we, we move our way back up through the, the layers of meta-narrative um, you know, back up to Jude Law and F. Murray Abraham, back up to Tom Wilkinson, and then back up to this actress I, sorry, didn't get the name of, but, you know, reading the book in, in the cemetery, and, you know, ending with that sad, slightly yodely music, and I think it's just a tour de force of style and acting performance and timing, and, and yeah, it, it's just overflowing with, with all this kind of stuff that is very much my shit, and it's very brief, and a lot of it is quite flowery, we, we've touched on the sort of the, the sadder moments, but, yeah, yeah, I just I think that's quite a nice one to have after you know such heavy stuff in literally all of them since Scott Pilgrim, like Social Network, Black Swan, Drive, Moneyball, Zero Dark Thirteen, Short Time Twelve are all varying degrees of sad, and I think it's quite nice to have something like this in here. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean I agree. Again, I think this is probably my favorite Anderson. I think it's yeah. him using all of his skills. Yeah to the very best. I think everything he's done until now has informed this kind of thing. And it's sort of like taking everything he's learned doing all these other movies and then it's probably not his biggest budget, but you know, it feels like a bigger scale to everything else. Like this is his earnest attempt at an honest to God mainstream Hollywood movie, even though it's not really, but yeah. And I'm glad that it was rewarded by being a highest grossing as well. So yeah, I said all that because in some ways I feel a need to warn and preface next week's episode. (laughs) One that Ben, I wouldn't say objected to, but would keep making little comments about being on the list. Next week is going to be Chef, which I will admit is probably not the best movie on this list, but it's nice and it makes me feel happy and that's why it's on the list. That will be our movie next week. Ben, you haven't seen Chef yet. Are you looking forward to it? I'm... We'll just leave it there. I'm... I'll be hungry. I mean, I watched Julie and Julia this week, and okay. I had a lovely little time with that. That was a, a, a okay. lovely little movie. So I'm hoping... John Favreau it's... is not going to pull a Meryl Streep out of that. <laughs> Hopefully it's a nice fun time. But until then, Benjamin, will there be movies? There will be movies, uh, but more likely there'll be movies that make me hungry. It will make you hungry. Do not watch it on an empty stomach. Uh, bye, everyone. Still I didn't know And I did it for